Hey, and welcome to The Token Daily. I'm your host, Suna Amaz. Each week, we sit down with movers and shakers in crypto to discuss big ideas, both in crypto and outside of it. Everything from trends we're seeing in the space to the books we're reading lately. This podcast is presented by the folks over at Blockworks Group, a blockchain event and media production company. For exclusive content and events that provide insights into the crypto and blockchain space, visit them at blockworksgroup.io. Andy Bromberg is president and co-founder of CoinList, a platform for token offerings and for building blockchain projects. Today on the show, we discuss whether or not airdrops are actually dead and the interesting trends in token distribution Andy's noticed, his transition from CEO to president, and whether or not KYC really spells out the end of decentralized exchanges. Plus, we also discuss a range of non-crypto topics like the keto diet, productivity hacks he can vouch for, and some of Andy's favorite books. Hey, Andy. Thanks for joining us at the show today. We're excited to have you here. Thanks for having me. And for listeners at home that don't already know, Andy is president and co-founder of CoinList. And if you want to give a little bit of CoinList, Andy, go ahead. Yeah, so really quickly, CoinList uh, is a platform where the best digital asset companies manage their token sales, their airdrops, and now their online hackathons. We've helped amazing projects like Filecoin and Blockstack and Definity uh, and soon 0x with their online hackathon um, and the former with their token sales and airdrops. And we're just working to make this space better and help the best projects raise money and build communities. Awesome. And CoinList isn't your first venture. You're a serial entrepreneur. You recently gave a chat at YC Startup School where you discussed that you became an entrepreneur, not necessarily because you were dead set on becoming an entrepreneur, but because you didn't want to do a lot of the jobs that other high schoolers were doing back when you were in high school. So you put together a few websites that were around your interests and figured out ways to monetize those. And I was curious if you give us a little background on, on what that process was like and what types of websites were you launching at the time? Yeah, sure thing. So there were a couple things going on back then. One was, yeah, I was looking around and saying, there's all sorts of jobs that all these high school friends of mine have, and I don't really want to do them. So what can I do? And, and I ended up doing a couple things. One was starting this kind of marketing firm with a few friends where we looked around and said, wow, a bunch of these people, friends of ours have amazing design skills or marketing skills or development skills. We should start building websites and running ad campaigns and doing photography and videography for local businesses. Uh, and so that was really great and got to take a bunch of our friends out of the, uh, out of the traditional job circuit there. Um, but then on top of that, yeah, I launched a few websites with friends um, a couple of them that did particularly well, there were a lot of failed ones uh, that, that didn't do well. A couple that did particularly well were, uh, one, a site around reviewing soccer cleats. So we're all really into soccer at the time. I love playing. We're on the team. And, uh, and we loved cleats. We were just obsessed with soccer cleats. And so we built a site reviewing them. It ended up being really successful. We had you know affiliate links and affiliate revenue. We had some advertising. And then most importantly for us, uh, the cleat company started sending us cleats. So all of a sudden we had more, these amazing, you know, $400 soccer cleats that we would never have bought in high school, uh, just being sent to us to review. And we got to wear them and give them to our, our friends. Uh, so that, that was one of them. Yeah. I love that. That's fun. Uh, and what were, what were some lessons that you gained or you learned during those days that you later on applied in your following ventures that we'll get into in a little bit? Yeah, I think one is, 
real firsthand experience with the absolute startup cliche of solve a problem that you have for yourself. And if other people have that problem too, it may turn into a successful business. And and that was pretty simple on those websites. Listen, I, I love soccer cleats and I want to figure out what the best ones are and what I should buy. And so let's solve that problem for ourselves and for other people. And so that was a, a pretty straightforward one. I think more importantly, and I think everyone who has been in an early stage company, whether you founded it or have just participated, can probably empathize with this. Things are crazy in early stage startups and no one really knows exactly what they're doing. And you just have to accept that. And I think a lot of people, when they participate in their first startup, whether that's the first thing they do in their career or they go into a startup uh, later in their career for the first time, really kind of get that for the first time. By the time they do their second one, it's less of an issue and less of a surprise that uh, everything's up in the air and you just all have to try as hard as you can to make it happen. And I think I was fortunate to experience a bunch of those hardships in a, in a much lower risk setting, doing these little side gigs in high school and, and side websites and realizing that you know, everyone's making it up as they go and you just got to try your best. And so by the time I got around to, to future ventures where the stakes were a little bit higher, uh, it wasn't as scary of a proposition for me. Absolutely. I think um, one of the fastest ways to learn is just go out there and do. And I think a lot of times people think the barrier is a lot higher than it actually is, but you are learning it as, as you do it. So you uh, graduate from high school, you go on to Stanford, where you established the Bitcoin group with a few other folks. And that was around 2012, where, I mean, if we think it's not that popular now, definitely wasn't popular back then. But you you left Stanford to start Sidewire. And that was essentially a platform where political experts could discuss pressing uh, news events or things that were going on in the political sphere. And I was curious what inspired the move into politics and then more importantly, what drew you back into crypto? Absolutely. And first of all, on the, on the Bitcoin group, I should give uh, proper credit that uh, it was a whole group of us that, that got that thing started, including uh, Balaji Srinivasan and Vijay Pandey, who were professors uh, at the time, now Balaji, the CTO at Coinbase and, and Vijay, the uh, a general partner in Dreesen Horowitz, and then six other uh, students with me. So we all got that thing started back in the day. And yes, it was very unpopular. It became a little more popular over the next couple of years, but um, very unpopular at the time. Uh, but yeah, to, to Sidewire, for me, it was less about wanting to go into politics and more about seeing an opportunity to try and improve the way that information flows happen on the internet. So what we built was this platform for experts, like you said, to chat publicly about the news of the day and share their perspective. And it was really an effort to just improve the signal to noise ratio on the internet, or at least in a specific type of discourse. That was the goal. The implementation of that happened to be political first uh, for a few reasons. First of all, I had this amazing partner uh, named Tucker Bounds, who was uh, my co-founder and was uh, had a deep political history, real knowledge of the space, tons of relationships. And so it was a, a no-brainer for us to bootstrap there. And then it was around the time of the election, the presidential election in advance of that, um, and so we were able to gear up for this really magnetic news cycle and uh, use that as a launching pad. Uh, so for, for me, it was less about I really want to go into politics and more about an opportunity to try and improve information on the Internet via this initial uh, vertical that we could go into with some unfair advantages. Oh, awesome. And uh, I guess it's relevant even now more, more than ever. So then what inspired the, the move back into crypto? Right. So in 2014, I didn't go into crypto because I thought there was a, a coin flip between whether there would be one cryptocurrency in the world, whether Bitcoin was going to be it, or if there were going to be a bunch of different uh, scarce digital assets out there. 
And I was looking at this and saying, man, startups are really hard. The chance of success is so low. I don't want to add another 50% failure rate onto that because anything I could think of relied on one of those two outcomes, either one asset or many existing. And so I, I didn't want to do it then. What got me back in was, first of all, just a continued obsession over the intervening years with, with the crypto space and close friends, having a ton of fun in it and meeting really interesting people and having amazing conversations about what the future of of money and communication could look like. Uh, and uh, and then, you know, on top of that feeling like that question was was resolved that, you know, I feel like there will be more than one scarce digital asset out there in the world. Uh, and so by having that question resolved and my continuing obsession with the space, uh, that's what, uh, what pushed me back into it. I want to continue tugging on that thread a little bit. So you have the question of whether we're trending towards Bitcoin only world or a single cryptocurrency world, whereas now you believe it's going to be a many or at least more than one digital asset world. I'm curious what convinced you that that's going to be the reality of what we'll see for the future of the space. And what have you seen become like this? What are the stickier use cases that you've seen or what, what are you most bullish on now? Yeah, so I think part of the part of what convinced me is just empirical observation of more things emerging and seeming to get some level of initial traction. But also more than that, I, I think it's just been more thinking, to be totally honest. And I maybe could have gotten to the same conclusion back in 2014, but just hadn't put in the thought necessary, hadn't had the conversations necessary with other with with you know other people in the space, people who are really smart and have thought a lot about it. Um, and, and at this point, it just feels to me like. There are sufficiently diverse use cases where there are trade-offs between uh, different characteristics of these assets that there are going to be many of them in the future. Uh, and, and they'll have different models, different consensus mechanisms, different ways of, of being created. Um, and, and they're just going to be different. And so it, uh, that's kind of what convinced me. In terms of use cases, I would be candid that I don't think there have been that many massive, great use cases for crypto to date. And I think we've been mostly in a infrastructure development phase, trying to build out the fundamental infrastructure technology to support future use cases and products on top of this ecosystem. Some that are exciting to me that that have launched and are out there. I think anything in the, uh, and I, you know, this is a, a little bit of, of a trope at this point, but the non-fungible token collectible space is really interesting to me. Obviously, the success of CryptoKitties early on um, was, a, was a really big signal for that. I think, uh, and we're actually seeing a little bit of a, a resurgence in in this in the last couple of weeks. MakerDAO, I think, is a tremendously underrated product in the space. Um, they set out to create an asset that was stable, and uh, and it's done that very successfully, even in bear and bull markets, uh, and with a variety of conditions imposed on it. Uh, and so it's it's accomplishing its goals, and I think doing so in a really clever way. And they're they're a really strong team, uh, doing really great work. And then I do think one other that, that I'm excited about that's shown kind of an initial use case and is now moving to a future one is Numerai, um, now called Erasure, their token now called Erasure, or, uh, or their platform, you know, building a, a place to incentivize um, predictions on uh, data sets. And, uh, and I think that's a, a really clever use case. And I think especially their, their evolution towards Erasure is, is particularly interesting there. That's certainly something we could dive into more, but I also would definitely recommend people check out the blog posts on that and, and look at the direction they're going. 
Awesome. So for New Ryan Erasure's part, we'll link to the blog post afterwards and Maker's performance has shown it to be promising. But I'm curious what your argument would be for NFTs. Like if there's an NFT skeptic listening, what would you say to convince them that this could, uh, this has a promising future or this uh, could be the way this space would trend or this could be our killer, killer app? Yeah, there's, there are a, a variety of arguments made here. I think the most interesting one to me is that if you take as an assumption that humans like collectible things. We like playing games. We like collectible things. There is endless evidence over the course of human history that that's the case. And uh, and I, I would not predict that to be changing anytime soon, but that's certainly an assumption you'd, you'd be making as part of this argument. The second premise is that uh, the world is moving towards a digital future. Software is eating the world, however you want to put it. Things are becoming more and more digital. And so you then get to this conclusion that well, digital collectibles seem like they're an interesting thing. And uh, and that is certainly true. And there has been evidence of centralized digital collectibles doing well. But I think that part of the staying power of collectibles in the long term is a lack of reliance on someone maintaining them. So maintaining a database, maintaining anything else, people want ownership of their collectibles, whether, you, whether that's baseball cards or other memorabilia or, or anything else. And what crypto has done, what the blockchain has done, is enable digital scarcity, strict scarcity for, for, uh, for assets and enable these digital assets to be held scarce without being manipulable by some other party. And that to me is really interesting. So it, getting to the, the conclusion that NFTs are interesting, although I don't know that I'd describe them as the killer app, but a potentially uh, valuable app, requires the premises of collectibles are valuable to human beings, uh, one. Second, uh, things are moving to a digital world. And third, within collectibles, people want to own them. And, and then the conclusion that blockchain enables uh, ownership of scarce digital goods and collectibles uh, makes them really interesting to me. I think that's a great line of logic to follow. And I really appreciate the repositioning from a killer app to a very valuable app. So I want to talk about CoinList for a second. Uh, you step back from your previous role as CEO, and now you're president. Um, and I was curious about what some of the factors were that contributed to that decision. Yeah, gr- greatest decision uh, we've ever made. I think, you know, crypto is an interesting market because it is so nascent that there is real value to evangelism, even in a com- even early in a company's life cycle. Usually I would say for most products and companies, go heads down, build, 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 don't worry about talking. But I think in crypto, because it's so early, because there's a lack of people saying the right things and pushing the industry in the right directions. There's certainly many, but perhaps not enough. There's real value to being out there even at the early stage. And so when CoinList started, I spent a lot of time doing that, evangelizing, uh, speaking publicly, uh, talking to regulators, having these external conversations that I thought and we thought were really valuable to the industry. And uh, it's been great and, uh, and was absolutely the right decision. But in the process, realized, wow, there's kind of a void here where I'm just not internal facing enough at the company. I'm not spending enough time on internal strategy. I'm not spending enough time on all of the internal things that we need to do to make this company really successful. Wouldn't it be great, and this was a conversation with the board, if we could find someone to take the reins there and really kind of lead this company while I go and do uh, what I'm best at, which is a lot of that external stuff. And so we uh, went through a process and, and found Paul Davison, now uh, the CEO of CoinList. And uh, that has been an amazing partnership. He joined uh, middle of last year, and, uh, and that's roughly how we do it is I, I handle 
largely the external things, though certainly he participates in that as well. And he handles largely the internal things, although I certainly participate in that as well. And, uh, and that division of responsibilities, I think, has enabled us to scale more quickly and be way more effective operationally and as a business uh, than we would have been otherwise. Absolutely. And I want to talk about that process in recruiting, Paul, a little bit more. Some of our listeners are operators or are looking to start their own companies and may find themselves in the same position where they're actively recruiting for a CEO. So what did the process look like for you guys? What were specific things you learned along the way as you were finding your, your next CEO? Yeah, well, it's it's certainly an unusual role to recruit for. Um, you have to be way more sure when you make the hire than you do in many other positions that you're hiring for, because if it doesn't work out, it's a way tougher position to be in. And uh, you know, at the end of the day, every answer to every recruiting question is always the same frustrating one, which is in-network is probably the best way to do it because it just gives you way more signal if you can get a referral to someone from someone that knows them really well and knows you really well than if you're finding them through another means. And so that's what we did is we really just mined the networks of our board, of people really close to the company and you know put out the feelers and we're able to get in touch with, with Paul through um, you know, a, a mutual contact who's very close to, to both parties and, uh, and really dig in. And, and at that point, again, it's, there's a level of confidence required for hiring a CEO. I'd say actually a very similar level of confidence towards picking a co-founder if people are in that position where you really just don't want to get it wrong. And, uh, and so at that point, lots of diligence, lots of meetings, lots of conversations, lots of reference checks um, and going through that process. But to get it started, it really is just a matter of in-network conversations and hopefully leading at some point, as it did in this case, to a spark where you say, ooh, this feels really good. This could be a good way to go. Let's dig in deeper and then go through your normal or perhaps even extended uh, uh, interview and diligence process until you can get that sufficient confidence to, to bring them on. As a company leader, talking more about the composition of the team, we hear a lot around the future of work being remote. And I know that CoinList has a, a remote working component to it. And I was curious if you guys favor co-location or what your opinion on remote working is and what, what are the trade-offs that um, companies make when they favor one over the other? Yeah. So for the most part, CoinList, um, we have a San Francisco office and a New York office, and uh, and there are a couple people that are outside of that. But really, that's that's pretty much where we are is, is these two locations. You know, I, I should be candid, I've never worked on a fully remote team before. But but my view is generally that either co-located, which I would consider us to be, even though we have two offices, but, you know, it's a, it's a co-located setup, or remote is you have to commit to one of them. And the in-between, I think, is where I see a lot of companies struggle, where there's an office with half the team, and then half the team is scattered around remotely. Because what it what it really comes down to, um, and actually one of my colleagues, Andreas Klinger, uh, formerly a, a product hunt as a CTO, um, now at Coinbit, CoinList, is uh, is an expert on this. He's worked with the product hunt remote team. He's worked with co-located teams. He talks a lot about this publicly. You have to build processes that fit how your team works. And so if you're uh, totally in person, if everyone's in the same office or in a couple offices, a lot of conversations will happen face-to-face. -face. A lot of them will happen ad hoc. Grab someone, hey, can we grab a room right now? I want to talk this over. And that works. If you're totally remote, you have to build processes, and it's way more process in that case, to support uh, you know, the remote team. So 
lots of notes being taken, things that fit for different time zones, uh, you know, coordination around multiple teams. You got to be way more uh, stringent about it. And I think where teams, and if you are willing to do that, that's great. Where teams really hurt is in the middle, where you've got an office where some people are having those ad hoc conversations, other people are left out, don't know they're happening because they're remote. And uh, and it's that in-between state that I think is really an issue. So I've seen super successful uh, remote companies, seen super successful in-person companies. I think uh, just committing to one or the other makes a lot of sense. And then finally, I would say my bias overall is towards in-person. Um, I think that's how you know most, if not all, great companies we have seen have been built. Um, and it's also just my personal bias for how I work, uh, which of course is, is a factor as well. Um, but at a minimum, committing to one of those two, two paths, I think is a an important way to go. Yeah, I agree. Um, I, there's something just invaluable to having that FaceTime. Um, I think the actual barrier to sending uh, an email or sending a message and the mental work that goes into it is lowered when you are in person. A lot of things come out that may have not come out otherwise. The actual barrier to getting information across is lowered. Um, and from a company building perspective, you guys are in a little bit of a unique case um, only because you are heavily involved with compliance. But I'm curious if you have different considerations for recruiting given your um, given the heavy regulatory scrutiny in this, in this space. Yeah, that's an interesting question. I, I think it ends up not being tremendously different from being you know any other company recruiting with a, a really high bar. Um, and, uh, and it's pretty straightforward there. I, I do think there is Certainly, we hire a lot of people on the legal and compliance side. So from a, a kind of hiring requisition perspective, that's different. Um, from who we are looking for, I do think, and this is less because we have legal and compliance and regulatory burdens, and more because it's just part of the culture of the company, people have to care about doing things the right way for us. And uh, and that's just, you know, start to finish how we've built our brand, how we built our company is that we do things legally, we do things compliantly, we approach things in a rigorous and thoughtful way. And, uh, and so that, that does filter out some candidates and, and leaves us with a set of people that are excited about putting in the time and effort uh, and thought to make that happen. Um, but it's, it's less of a, a direct thing and more of just a, a result of, of how we've built our company and what we've focused on. Cool. I think this is incredibly helpful um, for all our listeners who are deciding what their composition of their team is going to be or starting to take that jump into a startup. I want to focus on the markets a little bit. There are plenty of podcasts that go over trends, so we're not going to spend too much time there. Let's talk about airdrops for a second. When uh, airdrops were at their peak, uh, we saw more of these free-for-alls, as long as someone heard, uh, someone held a certain number of tokens and there was a snapshot of a certain block on a blockchain, they were able to receive uh, the equivalent or uh, some portion of those tokens. And then we saw this evolution to a more sophisticated way of distributing to end users, similar to how Handshake made developers do OAuth for their GitHub accounts to prove that they made contributions to their projects and verify who was receiving the actual, who, were, who was actually receiving actual tokens. So I was wondering how you've observed airdrops changing lately. Are projects leaning on different distribution models now, or what does the state of airdrops look like? Yeah, it's a it's another good question. I, I have a rough taxonomy of three types of airdrops, each of which have many subsets, and I'll, I'll race through it really quickly here. The first is a broad airdrop. Uh, so this is just kind of an awareness campaign, and it's exactly what you were talking about, free for all. Just get as many people as possible to have the token, uh, usually a pretty small amount, so that they're aware and, and you know drive attention to to the project. 
Um, and that's certainly one type of airdrop. It's still happening, although way less than it was last year um, when there were there were constant $1 airdrops into every wallet you could find. The second category is airdrops based on off-chain characteristics. So what I mean by this is it's an airdrop where someone gets tokens for something having to do with themselves, not having to do with anything uh, about a crypto wallet or an amount they have or anything like that. So that would be things like what you were saying. Off-chain characteristic of someone is that they are an open source developer. And so because of that, they get tokens in the handshake airdrop. Uh, or it's because they signed up for a mailing list somewhere and they have participated in, in some community before uh, or anything like that. So this is now, I think, the category of airdrops that's really been on the rise is these targeted airdrops where people are looking for a specific type of person, whether it's developers or data scientists or Wikipedia editors or community participants. And these people have some sort of characteristic about them, either who they are or something that they've done uh, that points them towards an airdrop. Usually these are larger dollar airdrops because you really are looking to reward the people, not just make them aware of the project, although that's a little bit of a, a blurry line there. Um, so that's the second category, these, these off-chain airdrops. And also in that, I would call um, this trend of proof of care people are talking about, which is kind of in exchange for doing something. So signing up for a Telegram group or writing a blog post or tweeting something, you get some tokens. That's also in my category of off-chain uh, characteristic airdrops, where for, for doing something off-chain, I get tokens. The last category that I am excited about and haven't seen uh, a lot of yet, but I think will be really cool when it happens, is airdrops for on-chain activity. So this goes a little bit beyond just having tokens in a wallet. Um, this is about the fact that people's transactions on various blockchains are public. Uh, they're observable. And it could be that for doing something on these blockchains in a verifiable way, you get tokens as a reward. So an example of this would be uh, if I wanted to launch a uh, gambling uh, token of some sort, a token that had something to do with gambling, I could go and I could look at all of the addresses that interacted frequently with Augur contracts, with prediction market contracts, and say, well, those people play with prediction markets a lot. I bet they would use a gambling thing. They're more likely to use a gambling thing because they are a prediction market person. So I'm going to go and airdrop some amount of tokens to all of the addresses that have frequently interacted with Augur contracts. And that is a really interesting model because you're using these on-chain characteristics about someone that you don't even know, that hasn't even talked to you uh, or alerted you of their existence in any way to give them tokens and, and build awareness and build participation. And then a, a second version of that could be after six months of my gambling token being live and being used, I could go and airdrop more tokens to the most active users as a reward for participating. And that's just, again, visible on the blockchain. I can go and see which addresses have been using a lot uh, and, uh, and give them more. So that third category of on-chain airdrops, I think, will come at some point when some of these networks start to be more actively used. Uh, but it's the last category I'm excited about. So broad airdrops, off-chain characteristic airdrops, and then on-chain characteristic airdrops. Absolutely. I think that last part is especially exciting. I know that there is oftentimes debate around whether the trade-off is worth it to, you know, do you sacrifice a little bit of awareness to make sure the users you want actually using it are going to be using your token in the way it's intended to be used and holding as well. And I wanted to ask a little bit on the uh, regulatory side. We saw a little bit of a KYC AML scare for DEXs. And um, a lot of people uh, were saying that this is pretty much spelling out the end or death of DEXs. And I was curious uh, what your thoughts or opinions are there. Yeah, it's a, uh, it is a very good and very nuanced uh, question. 
I think there is a category of things that people have been calling DEXs that are actually reasonably centralized. So I, I think the, the spectrum from centralized exchange to decentralized exchange is really a spectrum. It's not a binary thing. And there are parts of the process that can become, that can be decentralized while other parts remain centralized. And exchange performs many functions. It provides order matching. It provides custody. It provides price visibility. It provides all these different things. And an exchange can have parts of that centralized and parts of it decentralized. I do think there's a large category of uh, things that people have been calling decentralized exchanges that have centralized components. And maybe decentralized exchange is still the right word for it holistically. But if those have, uh, have certain characteristics that are centralized, they may have obligations under uh, the Bank Secrecy Act or some other set of regulation in the U.S. or internationally that require them to do things like KYC AML. If something is truly not controlled by anyone, truly, truly not controlled by anyone, totally decentralized, it is hard to imagine how exactly a KYC AML requirement would be enforced. That's not to say it might it doesn't apply, but even if it does apply, hard to imagine how it would be enforced if it's truly distributed. And so I think the question for me is, how does that develop? I don't think the matter is settled yet, but I certainly do think that for the category of things that were calling themselves totally decentralized and were not, uh, they may have increased requirements that they have to handle uh, under the under the relevant regulatory authorities. Makes sense. And, and speaking of DEXs and shifting gears a little bit, you guys are actually planning on hosting a hackathon uh, with ZeroX, which will be going on until February 7th. And I wanted to know what inspired it. Why are you guys doing this now? And how are you guys thinking about hackathons uh, in the future? Yeah, so we, our goal is, you know, one of our goals is to support uh, these token issuers in building communities. And in talking with them over and over again over the past year or two, what we keep hearing is we need help building our developer community. And so we looked at that and said, are there products we can offer? And what we came up with is Coinless Build, which is our online hackathon product. So helping top token issuers host online hackathons involving the Coinless community, their community, uh, new community members for them that can build projects on top of their platform. And ZeroX is an amazing first partner to be working with. Um, really thoughtful team, really focused on developer engagement. And our goal there is just to let anyone in the world, anywhere, who has talent in developing things on top of uh, these platforms to be able to do so and be rewarded for it. So anyone that submits a project in our ZeroX uh, hackathon gets $100 worth of ZeroX tokens and is entered for uh, prizes, tens of thousands more dollars um, if they uh, if they do really well and their project is appreciated by our amazing panel of judges. So for us, it's about first helping these token issuers to get access to developers who want to build things on top of their platforms and then really helping these developers get access to mentorship, get access to documentation, get access to prizes, get access to ideas that they can build and giving them a chance to, to build on top of uh, these ecosystems. So really excited about this new product. And of course, particularly excited about our first one with ZeroX, which is uh, just about to launch. Can you give us a sneak peek into which projects you'll be partnering up with to do future ones or are those not decided yet? Uh, not decided yet. We've got a bunch of amazing, amazing issues. I think the one of the things that made us happiest is we launched this, uh, announced this hackathon with zero X and immediately heard from a bunch of our favorite teams in the space saying, whoa, this is really interesting. Can we do one too? And so what we're seeing is uh, a real demand from issuers for help building their developer community, now kind of quantitative demand. And at the same time, even with the signups for the zero X hackathon, 
seeing amazing demand from the developer community for the types of things we can offer to them uh, by partnering with these these issuers. So really excited about this product. I think it's going to be cool to see it evolve over the uh, the coming months. Awesome. I, I want to take a second now to actually shift the conversation to non-crypto related topics. I'm sure you know crypto is one part of your life, um, but there are other things you think deeply about. One thing I was interested in learning more about is I know you spend time thinking about health and fitness. And last I checked, you um, were on a keto diet. And uh, one, don't know if that's information stale now. So l- let me know that first. But then secondly, and this is as a vegetarian, I'm asking this, but what do you think makes keto superior or how does it compare to um, other diets? Yeah, really, really interesting question. Uh, not stale information, although I'm, I'm almost ashamed to say it now because I feel like it's become at this point a, a cliche in the crypto space of uh, crypto, crypto it's a bit of a meme. carnivores yeah. and everything, which is, which is really a shame. Um, yeah. And I should say, you know, all of the things I said up to this point in this episode are not legal or tax or investment advice. And this is certainly not uh, nutrition advice or anything like that. Um, I've just found that it works really well for me. And I think is, there's plenty of research out there on, on why, uh, in particular, the keto diet is interesting for mental performance, for sleep quality, for longevity, for disease prevention. Um, and, and for me, honestly, it has just been this mental clarity that uh, is not for everyone. But when, when I got on it, it was all of a sudden like this brain fog had just lifted from my from inside my head. I've been on it for about two years now, and it has just persisted of clarity of thinking and and great sleep and everything else. And uh, yeah, for me, there's it just triggered something that that made my body and, and brain work better. So I'm a uh, I'm a big fan. Are there any other things that you have been thinking about lately as it relates to health or fitness that uh, you think are unobvious or people don't pay as much attention to, and you wish that they did? Yeah, that's an interesting question. Uh, lots of things. I think uh, sleep environment is a really interesting and important one um, that you know people talk about uh, the amount of sleep that they get, and, and that's certainly important. Um, but the quality of sleep is really interesting too. Uh, so using a sleep tracker of some sort and, and measuring your sleep quality, um, there are better ones and worse ones, and then really trying to optimize the environment. So there's the obvious things like you know, dark room and good airflow and uh, some noise that's, that's kind of blanketing everything out, um, all of that and, and tweaking it until you find something that works well for you. Uh, again, for me, it's just been night and day in terms of getting that environment figured out and, uh, and how good, uh, I feel during the day are really, really important. Um, and then one last thing I would say just generally on, on health and fitness, again, aside from all the obvious stuff, you could talk about exercising and, and everything else. Um, I, I think the, there's some really interesting research coming out on, uh, and this is fairly new, kind of chronic low-level inflammation in all sorts of people, um, just because of everything that's going on around us, how, you know, kind of industrial the world has gotten and, and everything that's happening. Um, and uh, and so looking into different supplements, things you can do to, uh, to help cure that if you might have it is, uh, is also a, a big area of research. So tons of, tons of good things coming out in, uh, on PubMed recently on, on all these topics. Oh, when you say inflammation, what are like the health consequences of that? I think I read an article about the link between inflammation and depression, uh, interestingly enough. Um, but I'm curious, are, do you just mean how the environment causes inflammatory inflammation within your body or, or what do you mean? Yeah. Well, yeah. First of all, I think whenever I talk to friends about any of these topics, my, my constant refrain is that 
bodies are weird and uh, we have all sorts of interesting and unpredictable responses to, to things that happen. So certainly some interesting research around inflammation affecting uh, mental state, all of that. Um, but yeah, the, just this, uh, you know, people have this uh, response that often results in kind of congestion ongoing or again, the foggy headedness, things like that, that uh, can really just feel persistent sluggishness and uh, 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 feeling lethargic. Um, and it can then lead to effects like some of the mental health issues or, or other things. But um, certainly it seems like there is a increasing prevalence of, of people's immune system responses uh, being stronger now on average uh, than they have been historically. Wow. Um, and, and while we're on the self-improvement track, if you're going to give your top three or four productivity hacks, what would they be? Oh, man, uh, that's an interesting one. I think um, number one for me is uh, Pomodoro technique, which is, has gotten pretty common. I just really recommend it. It's really simple. At a high level, it means uh, working for 25 minutes at a time and then taking a five-minute break. The important things are, first of all, not, not uh, deviating from that schedule if you're doing it. So if you're working for 25 minutes and you feel like you're really in the flow, and you're like, God, I, this is what I'm looking for. I should just keep working. Still stop. Stop for five minutes and do something else and then resume. And right when the 25 minutes ends, stop immediately. Don't finish the sentence. Don't send the email. Don't just stop. Pens down. Go and take a break. And it is amazing for me, at least, uh, that it really manages to keep me in flow over a longer period of time. Because these breaks are something that, at least my brain, it seems like many others, need. Um, but it enables you to keep the flow state going for longer because you're kind of resuming inflow and then, and then kicking out of it. Um, and so I've found that to be uh, a really powerful uh, kind of time, time management technique there. Um, second productivity hack, I would say, you know, it sounds silly and it sounds like it doesn't save that much time, but uh, keyboard shortcuts for everything. For me, it's just one of those things where uh, I don't know how much time it actually saves me. But it feels way better. It feels like I can stay in that flow state. I think a lot of productivity for me is about being in that flow state. Um, and having keyboard shortcuts for everything where your hands can just stay on the keyboard when you're at your computer and not move off it. For me, the, the lack of kind of breaking there and moving my hands around and looking at different places uh, is something that I think makes me uh, be able to stick in that flow state way longer. Um, and the last thing I'll say that I, I've been really enjoying recently is I always try and again, for, for flow reasons, break my time into, you know, you talk about like the maker and manager time or, or, you know, meeting time versus, um, versus, uh, you know, your, your own work time. Um, so I, I do both kind of time boxing where every day for as far as I can tell in the future is not scheduled out as in what exactly I'll be doing, but is time boxed into, uh, this is time where I might schedule meetings. This is time where I'm working on my number one priority for the day. This is time where I am you know, going to the gym, I'm doing yoga, whatever it is. Uh, and that time boxing allows that routine to stick through. So I always know from X time to Y time, I'll be in meetings or from Z time to A time, I'll be working on, on triaging my to-do list. And that time boxing, I think is, is really helpful too for, again, keeping the flow state and, and uh, making sure you're working on the right things. Absolutely. I feel like there's this overarching theme of just discipline, especially around your uh, time and routine, regardless of how you feel um, and prioritizing that over over in order to be more productive. You know, it's so rare that, at, at least for me, and I know for many of my friends that I've talked to about this, it's so rare that there's something that's actually stopping you from being productive. 
it is just your mental state that isn't feeling up to it at the time. And if you have a routine and are able to go right into it and, and resume, maybe it doesn't feel great for the first 10 minutes, but then you forget about it. It's like telling a kid to go you know, to some karate lesson they don't want to go to where they complain, 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 and they show up. And then 15 minutes in, you look and you're like, wow, they're having a great time over there. Uh, and, uh, and I think it's the same for a lot of situations with working where, you know, you, you show up, you've got, you're looking at your to-do list, you're saying, uh, I just, I just don't want to do that. But when you set that Pomodoro timer and you start doing it, you start taking off items. By the time you end your first Pomodoro 25 minute session, you're saying, wow, I'm feeling great. I'm in the flow and, and let's keep this thing going. I also wanted to ask you about, I thought this was really interesting. Um, you've talked about, you've thought about how people perpetuate frauds and how to stop them. And I can see how that would be um, especially relevant to this space. Um, but I'm curious what exactly you Yeah, I was going to say, that. you said we we're going to talk about things not related to crypto, but but here we are. I think, <laughs> yeah, the um, the that to me is really interesting. I think partially brought by some of the frauds that we have seen in the crypto space. Um, but I also think uh, successful frauds reveal a lot about human nature and thinking about how to prevent them tells us a lot about what we can do to prevent, protect ourselves from biases and, and things that would cause us to, uh, to, to think incorrectly, if you will. Uh, and so actually three, I'll give three great book recommendations, very different from one another. Um, and you can, we could argue about kind of what spectrum of fraud these all fall on, but at least with the general concept this amazing book that just came out called Billion Dollar Whale about the 1MDB Malaysian Sovereign Wealth Fund um, uh, fraud that went on where this, this guy uh, invested a bunch of money and spent it doing crazy things. Um, second, uh, Bad Blood, the Theranos story um, written by, by the Wall Street Journal reporter John Kerry. Um, and then third, uh, this book from this guy named Brian Holiday who um, is head of marketing, I think, for American Apparel called Trust Me, I'm Lying, about how his stories, probably a little bit exaggerated, but really interesting about how he manipulates media. And I think what's interesting is a lot of this has to do with stacking little things on top of each other. So it's it's easy in a lot of these, you know, these books are all roughly about fraud or deception of some sort, uh, about how it starts with something small that isn't a big deal for someone to, you know, for one of these people to lie about or uh, you know, for, for one of these people to to tell someone and have them believe. And then these things just stack on top of each other. And so what I think is, is really interesting to me is when you're trying to prevent frauds or detect frauds, there's two levels at which you can try and catch it. You can either try and catch it at the first lie or first step of the fraud. And that's, again, something that wouldn't ordinarily seem, you know, totally out of control. But that's it's one of those things where the, the phrase trust but verify comes in. We're just thinking about, you know, every time someone says something that might be even a little bit off, you're thinking, well, what would be their incentives to start to, you know, cause some bigger issue here? And how can I catch that uh, is an interesting exercise to go through and try and see how you can spot these things early on. And then second is if you're being faced with something that looks very legitimate, but might be a fraud because it's, you know, got the backing of all these little lies stacked up behind it. How do you detect that? Um, and I think that just goes to, to really deep examination and diligence and thinking about fundamental premises and, and incentives. Um, much longer conversation here, but I, I just think the successful frauds mean that along the way, a lot of very smart people were deceived. And anytime something like that happens, it's interesting to look at that, analyze how it could have happened and how, how those same biases can be avoided by you. Of the books you recommended, 
Are there specific tips or ways that they navigate situations where they're able to proactively, or at least as soon as they realize it's happening, put a stop to it? Or what are ways to actually um, stop uh, fraudulent behavior from escalating? Yeah, I think it's it's it, interesting. It's so situationally dependent, but at some point, what happens in in certainly in the Theranos story and in the in the One MDB story is that someone who was key at some point to the fraud becomes disillusioned for whatever reason. Either they weren't treated properly by the fraudster or uh, you know their incentives became misaligned and it becomes more valuable for them to go and whistleblow in some way, uh, small or large, and, uh, and get that started. And at that point, everyone along the way who has been defrauded has an incentive to come back and try and collect and, and you know, catch the issue. Uh, and so, uh, you know, I think the, the simplest way these things get caught and unravel is, is with a whistleblower. Um, but certainly, you know, you look at these and all along the way, there are a lot of people that made fundamental errors or didn't double check things and didn't, you know, make sure that what they were hearing was correct. And, and uh, that's a much simpler way to catch them. I think we mostly hear about the very successful frauds, but there are many more that get stopped along the way by diligent, smart people who are keeping an eye out. And, uh, and those are the, the real success stories. So uh, that just involves, you know, a careful eye and, and, uh, and close diligence. Absolutely. Um, it always comes down to the incentives, <laughs> incentives games, it, it seems. Always. And the last topic I want to discuss is actually one that's fundamentally important to me. So I was incredibly excited to see this. There's a quote uh, Dick Costolo has thrown around like on his Twitter, and it's, reading fiction builds empathy. You learn that everybody else out there in the world is a me as well. And uh, has been one of my all-time favorite quotes because it really does give you um, a good look into the human condition. And you specifically framed it as um, a a medium for learning about human relationships and politics. I'm curious what that means to you, the benefits of reading fiction in a world where, um, especially within Silicon Valley, nonfiction, self-improvement types of books are are pushed, uh, but we see less emphasis on fiction and science fiction. So curious, one, what books do you recommend? And then two, what what does it mean to you? And what are you um, exactly driving? from those stories that you find is valuable. Yeah, well, one, they're just really ex- exciting and fun to read oftentimes. So, so certainly just the pure enjoyment is, is a factor. But beyond that, to the, to the more important points, if you have an author who has interesting insights about the world, and I, in my view, authors, great authors are great because they have observed something interesting or many interesting things about the world. And their craft is about taking those observations and putting them down in some sort of written form. And that's what a great author does. And with, with nonfiction, um, which I, I also read a lot of and, and, and enjoy, you are limited by the real world. So rarely are real world occurrences perfect demonstrations of some observation. And, uh, and you, know, you can think about something really simple like uh, you know, the hero's journey, right? The thing we all heard about in, in high school literature class where someone, you know, rises up and reaches a peak and then falls. And, you know, there's this kind of sequence that you go through. And in the real world, of course, there are many examples of people going through that, but they're rarely kind of perfect examples. And so you you have to do a little bit of extra work as a reader to get there and get the get the lesson out of it because it's it's constrained by these the real world retelling of the story. What's interesting about fiction and science fiction for me is that these authors can take these observations and literally build a world to show off that specific observation. They can say whatever they want. They can 
you know, make people act in a certain way. They can, you know, make the society function in a certain way. They can exclude parts of normal human society. They can add new parts, all to show off these interesting observations. And so when I read really great fiction of any sort of science fiction, I oftentimes am reading it thinking about, well, what was the fundamental observation that this author or fundamental observations that this author has had about how we all interact with each other uh, here in the real world? And what, how are they using this to get, get it across? And I think you know, maybe one of the all-time great examples is the Dune series in science fiction. Uh, and, uh, and it's about politics, but it's in a world where the politics is really all that matters. And, and that's just not true in our real world. And so if you want to learn about politics, reading a book written by an incredible observer of human politics, written to show off exactly those observations and nothing more and nothing less, I think is, is one of the best ways to learn about that. So uh, it's for me, fiction is about kind of transmuting those real world observations into fake world observations where any reader can get the observation rather than needing to find it in the, in the haystack of, of the real world. So that's one of the reasons I really enjoy fiction. Wow, that's incredibly powerful. I wish we could uh, continue the conversation. I, this was all so interesting, but we're out of time, unfortunately. I wanted to say thank you so much for joining me today, and I really appreciated your perspective on everything. Thanks for having me. Really appreciate it. Hey, everyone. Suna here. If you liked this episode of The Token Daily and want to help us take crypto to the top of Apple, Spotify, and other podcast charts, then please do us a favor and rate, review, and smash that subscribe button. To leave a review, simply go to the Token Daily homepage and scroll down until you see five blank stars. Taking a few seconds to fill those stars in and leaving a quick review goes a long way in helping us take the entire crypto ecosystem to the top of the charts. Thanks again for choosing to listen to the Token Daily. I'll see you next time.